If you want to read along with in your Bibles, turn to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. For everybody who's been here for the last two weeks, we've started a new series on the church, church life. And this is what we were speaking about probably through most of the summer. The last two weeks we spoke out of the book of Ephesians on the unity of the church. Over the next couple of months as we speak about church, I won't go about it in a systematic way. I will speak about it more in a thematic way. And uh, the theme for the last three weeks has been the unity of the church. Believers come together united in the name of Christ for the purpose of Christ. And we'll find more out about that as we go along. If you are a believer now, you probably understand what the purpose of Christ is. And that is to share Christ with other people. Uh, Jesus likes to bless people. Jesus likes to show how much He loves humanity and fill our hearts with something much greater than this world could ever do. This world really can't give much. It, it promises a lot, but it doesn't give much. It doesn't deliver. And uh, So we pray that if you're here today, maybe for the first time, you'll understand a little more about the gospel of Jesus Christ today and what it means to be a Christian. But for everybody else, I pray that this enriches your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be part of a church. What it means to be part of the, the, the Christian family. And uh, Psalm 133 is a quintessential Old Testament text on what unity in God really is. So let's go to Psalm 133 and we'll read that. It's, it's a very, very long psalm. All three verses. So by the end of the day, you should memorize it. Let's read. Behold, the psalmist says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded his blessing life forevermore. Let's pray. Father, like always, we come to your word, God, with a sense of awe and reverence and a sense of needfulness for you to breathe upon the text, to give us understanding, Father God, on this, this poem, Father God, this Hebrew poem to enter into 2,500 years ago and to teach us what the psalmist meant. How does this draw us closer to you, God? What do these words of unity and pleasant and good and Aaron's beard and oil and Mount Hermon and dew, what does it have to do with us today, Father? Teach us, Father God. Show us how relative this psalm is today after all these thousands of years, Father God. Show us exactly how much we need this psalm in our life, Father God. And show us how Christ fulfills it for us, Lord. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, unity between believers has always been part of God's work. Not just between believers, between husbands and wives. I mean, Adam and Eve were called to be in unity, to call to love one another. Cain and Abel were called to care for one another and be their brother's keeper. Unfortunately, we know the end result. Unity is something that's close to God because the Bible teaches us that God is unity. There's a mystery to the Godhead. There's a mystery to God. There's three persons Jesus reveals, but one God, the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is a mystery of the faith. I wish I could sit here and give you a long lecture or a short lecture that will convince you of it. I cannot do that. Faith apprehends these things, sees these things, and calls them glorious and blessed. And that's what we do. Jesus teaches us the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that there's a relationship between the Godhead. And it's a good relationship. It's harmonious. It's unity. It's tranquil. It's peaceful. It's respectful of each other. And it's out of God's character, and I don't want you to miss this, that God creates everything. So when He creates humanity, He creates humanity to be in unity, to be caring, to be considerate and compassionate one to another. But we all know we failed pretty miserable in that. But when Jesus comes into our life, He again starts to restore this brokenness, this fractured sort of society we live in. That's what Jesus came to do. To call people from a diverse backgrounds as ethnic backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds and uh, intellectual backgrounds. We all come together and we put down the weapons of warfare our words and our intentions and our opinions and our criticism and our judgments and, and we come and we truly embrace one another out of what Christ has done for us. This is the unity of the New Testament. The Old Testament has its unity. God has always wanted unity amongst His people. And this is really the quintessential Old Testament text. Only three verses of Scripture. Grammatically, very simple. Very simple. We're going to get into this as we go along. But it expresses something so deep. And hopefully I can just touch upon the depth of this psalm. Like I said, it's only three verses of scripture. You would read it and just move on and forget about it if you didn't realize the significance of everything it says. And prayerfully we can get behind the significance of this today and, and, and see just how sweet the psalmist, or to see what the psalmist sees. And this is King David. He sees something precious. He sees something admirable. He sees something that's so rich, it gives life. And I pray that we can possibly see what he sees and understand how sweet this is. What we got going on over here is King David is somewhere in Jerusalem and he's watching a procession take place. It is a festival. There were three annual festivals in Old Testament Judaism. It was Passover, it was Pentecost, and it was the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And what happened, these were three annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Uh, most of them took place in and around the summer, and usually very hot, very arid, very dry, it's a desert region. And what David is visioning here, he's visioning this pilgrimage coming up. And this is what's going on here. It is a pilgrimage. There are people coming from every corner of Palestine. And you know the old saying, all roads lead to what? Heaven. Some people believe that. All roads lead to Rome. But really, in Palestine, all roads would have took you to one main road that would have led you to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on top of this high mountain. There wasn't a lot of roads to get into. It was the one main road. And King David would have recognized this. And, and here they were coming, people from all over Palestine, all God's people, from a diverse background. They're all coming together, like these little streams, these little conduits, are all coming together into this one road, and they're marching up to Jerusalem, probably the Passover, and they're going up there, and they're going to worship God. And it's, you got to see these, all these little estuaries just coming together. 
to form this great big throng, this multitudes upon multitudes of people, probably a caravan going, if not five miles, ten miles, twenty miles long of people just coming up to Jerusalem to worship God. They're all in unity. They all have one thing on their mind. They're going to the ceremonial call to have a festival to God. And that's what these three annual feasts were. They weren't just religious protocol. They were feasts. They would eat. They would drink. They would have song in their heart for what Christ has done. And it wasn't just a party for a party's sake. The Passover was a, a, a constant annual reminder that God delivered the people from bondage in Egypt. It was a constant theological reminder of something wonderful God had done for His people. And all these roads are coming together. We see this in the book of Luke. If you remember Luke chapter 20, chapter 2. Remember Jesus when He went up to the Passover feast? And after three days, they went back home and His parents looked around and they said, Where's the young man Jesus? And they said, We thought He'd be with His relatives in the group. It means caravan. Or His acquaintances. That what was taking place. It was such a time of community, a, such a time of unity to come together that you can lose your 12 year old son for two days and not even recognize he was gone because you assume he was with somebody in the caravan. You see, the pilgrimage is something very special and something very sweet because it's designed by God. It's not about, well, hurry up, get up to Jerusalem, take the, the 515 Express, get there, do your due diligence, and get home. The three annual feasts, on this, Jews had no vacation. There wasn't a vacation. Throughout the year, it wasn't like, well, it's the middle of harvest, well, I'm going to take a week's vacation. No, you didn't do, you didn't do that. You worked. You worked 24-7, and the one day you rested, you rested on what? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. Guess who else was resting on the Sabbath? Every other devout Jew. You know when they took their vacation? They all took together when they went up to the festival. They all ceased from work. They all had one common goal. They stopped from working. They were going up to the festival. They were going up to worship God. They were coming from 240 miles long, 30, 40 miles wide. They're all coming up to this one little town called Jerusalem. They're all funneling in day after day after day. King David is on his throne. He is acknowledging. He is watching. He's watching the people come in. He's watching the joy. He's watching the camaraderie. He's watching the solidarity. He's watching the caring. He's watching the compassion. They're all coming up for the one. One goal to worship God. Is there a stronger common bond for humanity to come together than it is to the worship of God? Isn't there something within human nature that desires unity, that desires solidarity? I mean, that's why we have cults, that's why we have subcultures. Parents are always concerned about when a child goes off to high school or college, what group are they going to get caught up in? Aren't parents? Are we going to get caught up in the skateboarders, into the potheads, into the basketball people, into this? And what group are we going to gravitate towards because we find comfort in a, in a, in a community? Not all communities are all that good. But people gravitate and migrate towards one another because we're looking for something. But there is no greater migration 
in coming together for any reason than to the worship of God. This is the soul's, one of the soul's highest aspirations is to come together and worship God. Just many people don't understand that. As Christians, we understand that. We'll get into this. But the pilgrimage was more than just a way of getting to a place. It was designed by God to take time where everybody ceased from working and it would take this long pilgrimage. And it was long. It was no two-day journey. It could take a week. It could take two weeks depending on how far away from Jerusalem you were on dusty roads. Understand that there was no Hyatt. There were few oases around. There were no Santa ports. Probably better off in the middle of the desert. We wouldn't want too many of those. It was inconvenient to go to Jerusalem. But yet it's a call to worship God. And everybody dropped what they had to do at the same time every year. And everybody funneled into this one road that would go up to Jerusalem. And here they come. And King David is saying. And he's watching it. And on the pilgrimage, people are come together. They're bonding. They're sharing testimonies of what God did for you. It's the harvest season. God has blessed me. God has blessed me. And people would come together and they would share what God was doing in their lives. The pilgrimage wasn't just hurry up. The pilgrimage was long and drawn out for the sake of people coming together. And that's what David seen when people, when God's brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. He's not talking about the final result of being at Jerusalem and worshipping, though that's there too, he's actually seeing the throng come forward. They're all coming together, fostering new relationships, strengthening old relationships, and maybe even healing some wounds between the people. We see how Mary and Joseph said, maybe Jesus is amongst his relatives or his acquaintance. It was a way in the pilgrimage to foster new relationships and meet cousins and, and do old business and take care of old, new business. It was social networking at its best. They're all going to a central location to worship God. It must have greatly helped to heal so many people who were dry in the spirit. You know, the day-to-day -day workings of life in general for you and me or for believers 2,500 years ago, this is probably more than three, almost 3,000 years ago. It's hard. It's tedious. Life is challenging. It's challenging for me. It's challenging for you. I know many people in this room. I know life is challenging. And God allows the festival, the pilgrimage, designed to bring people together, to encourage one another. This is what David's seeing. And he says this in verse 1, Behold. He starts off with behold. And what the word means in Hebrew means to look. It's to get someone's attention. It's like a herald saying, Behold! The king is coming! Remember who did that? Remember when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem? Behold, your king, riding in lowly on a donkey. Behold, something is taking place. Let everybody look at what's going on here. David's saying, see this. See what I see. See with the eyes of faith. He's pointing to something. He's pointing to the reality of being united. He's pointing to the reality of unity. He is pointing itself 
self-evident. When people come together, it's self-evident. It's good and it's pleasant. Just look at how wonderful and majestic this all is. Unity speaks for itself. It reveals itself. But it's not just for anybody to see. David sees this, a man after God's own heart. It's for the pure in heart. Only the pure in heart can see this mass of people coming together from a diverse backgrounds, and yet at the same time, behold, it is good. Because he sees behind just the natural, and he sees the supernatural of what's taking place. He's saying, look at it, they're coming up to worship God, the God I love. The God who loves me, we're all coming together now. We're, we're coming to love God. This is David's commentary as it reflects on the whole scene. It must have been magnificent. Understand something about David. David, the king of Israel, the shepherd of Israel, was called to be a father of Israel. David loved God, but David loved God's people. He loved them. If you understand the difference between David and Saul, you would see the great difference of why God called David. Because God said, he's a man after my own heart. The implication was Saul was not a man after my own heart. But David is. David was a shepherd. God told David, I'm taking you from following the sheep to being a shepherd over my sheep, Israel. David saw the beauty of all this. He saw like a proud father... He's speaking on behalf of God now. God is saying, behold how wonderful and majestic it is when brethren from diverse backgrounds come together. How good and how pleasant it is. All those who would go to the festival with Jehovah, they had a sense in their hearts and their minds they were there for a reason. To thank God for redemption. Thank God that they're a nation because of God. The reason they're alive, the, re the reason they have their existence was because of God choosing one man, Abraham. And from Abraham came a whole nation. Now here comes the whole nation to say thank you for rescuing our forefathers from slavery in Egypt and under Pharaoh. And here we are, we have freedom in this land and we're worshiping you under David and under Solomon. The land is prospering. The commanded blessing is here. And now we have the freedom to come and worship God. There was peace on all sides. And they're coming together to worship. So wonderful as this is that David can see it. It's almost like he can compartmentalize. It's like a social science going on. You can break it down and you can analyze how sweet, how good and how pleasant it is when the brethren come together and dwell in unity because the only reason they have unity is because their eyes are fixed on one thing. They're here to worship God. And when people come together to worship God, this unity is non-existent. It's non-existent. When we come to worship God, there's no greater, there's no lesser. There's no richer, there's no poorer. There's no good looking, there's no, no not good looking. Everybody comes together and we worship God the same. All the externals that mean something in life mean nothing in the worship of God. Everything that brings disunity in the world means nothing when it comes to the worship of God. 
This is what David sees. He sees it. And he knows it's the great engineer. It's God himself who has orchestrated this beauty. There's a wisdom to this pilgrimage. God understands. It's important to understand this, that the children of Israel knew they were part of something big. But they didn't have an iPod. They didn't have a cell phone. They didn't have a computer. Uh, they barely had one place of worship. and They had to go up to Jerusalem for that. They had to travel. They knew they were part of something big, but rarely they ever got to see the king. They never got to see the high priest. There's a lot over here that they were left on the fringes of the wilderness. But when they got together and they worshipped God, and they saw the king, they saw Aaron, they saw the high priest, and they saw, they, they knew, they remembered, I'm part of something much bigger than my little town. I'm part of a nation that's called to serve God. Yes, all the hard choices I made for God throughout the year, I can see now at the festival, He's worthy, He's worthy, He's worthy, He's worthy. This is part of man's daily bread as they come together and to recognize they're part of something just much greater than ourselves. We experience that when we come to church, when we fellowship, when we pray, when we worship. We've got to be reminded that, you know, something in life is a lot more important than what I think it is. That the kingdom of God and eternity is a lot bigger than I perceive it to be. And when we come together and we share and I hear what's going on in people's lives and I remember, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. The psalmist is watching this whole thing. David is watching it. Maybe he's on the eastern wall of Jerusalem. He's watching over the road. He's watching the throngs come in. And he can see it almost like in time-lapse photography. Minute detail as the people are sharing their hearts. They're sharing joy. They're sharing what God has done in their life. They may be sharing their pains of their last year. Where, where is so-and-so? And, where, and all, someone's dying. Someone's sick. And, and they're sharing. And, and they're mourning with those who mourn. They're rejoicing with those who rejoice. And, and this is what a community of faith does. They, they're emotionally involved with each other's lives. And this is one of the things that have driven me to the text and have driven me to the series because as New Testament believers living in America in the 21st century, everything in America points to division and not to unity. Everything. Me and my wife get together and we have the purpose to put the cell phone down. I had to go to Italy and shut it off. It was nice. Two weeks I didn't have to deal with it. But we all know that. We're, we're all into this. And, and it's like, but we're forgetting this. We all know that there are so many distractions to life. If the things in our life distract us from the people we love the most, who we can see, and has always reminded me with to-do lists, how much more about God I mean, I hear God in the scriptures, but he didn't wake me up this morning. I don't see him. I don't see him like you. I've got to be reminded that God comes first. Amen? Amen? And we do that. We come together and we remind each other that God comes first. And we've got to worship God. David sees all this. 
slow motion before him. He, he sees the big picture. What David's seeing here, he's actually seeing what John saw. Remember John the Apostle when he's in the book of Revelation in the fourth chapter and he was called up by the angel and the angel said, John, come up here and behold, it says, he saw the throne of God and him who sits upon the throne. But he, right away his eyes are reflected off the throne to the rainbow around the throne and the sea of glass before the throne. And the next thing he sees, he sees the four living creatures worshiping God. Then he sees the four, 24 elders and they're worshiping God. Then he sees the myriads and myriads of angels and they're worshiping God. Then he sees all the people of every tribe, tribe tongue, and nation speaking and they're all worshiping God. That's what David sees here. He sees it in the natural. John was caught up into the third heaven. He got to see it spiritually. This is their high season spiritually. They longed for this. Fourth of July comes around quick, doesn't it? They did this three times a year. And it was all condensed within a five month period. But yet the devout Jew would travel. Because they wanted to be where God is. God was in Jerusalem, God was in the festival, God's people were there, all those who have a pure heart would go up there and worship God, and, and, and it was good. And let me go into verses 2 and 3 here. There's two simple words that describe the whole sense, and they're both similar, the whole scene. Two simple words, one is good, one is pleasant. Then there are two analogies that describe it, and, but we'll go into the words first. He says, let me read verse 2. This whole scene of dwelling together in unity, this whole procession, the throng of people, this whole pilgrimage coming in for one reason, the worship God, the rich and the poor, the priest and the peasant, they're all coming in, they're all going to worship God. And he says, how good and pleasant it is. Two simple words. That's all. Do you know why? Because that's what life's supposed to be. It's supposed to be simple. It's supposed to be good. It's supposed to be pleasant. We're just trying to find good and pleasant everywhere outside of God. But once you get outside of God, it's very confusing, isn't it? You got to manage it. You got to kind of control it. But over here, it's just it's good and pleasant. And this is what it is. The both words come from the same root. It means to please. But here's what he's saying: It's good is objective. Pleasant is subjective. Objective means if you were to see and sit back with, see what David saw to see the, the thousands and, and sometimes the estimations were up to 500,000 a million people could be in Jerusalem at one time at one festival and he sees it all come in and what he's saying he's saying it's good it's obviously good right look at all the people coming to worship God they all got one thing in their heart one thing in mind it's good but then he says it's also pleasant because when you see it objectively that it's good it starts to warm the heart you say, this is really pleasant. This, there's a sweetness to all this. I, I feel spiritually revived. I feel close to God. I feel at peace. I'm not thinking about everything else. I'm, I'm too overwhelmed with what's going on before me in the worship of God. Look how God engineered and designed the whole thing. How beautiful God. This is good. It is pleasant. My heart is overwhelmed. And he goes on. Next he comes to two analogies. One is ceremonial from the priestly consecration of the high priest Aaron, 
who represents the nation of Israel to God. The other comes from nature. It's Mount Hermon and its life-giving dew. The oil represents God's grace. And it flows down the breastplate of Aaron, the, the high priest, and it covers his chest and understands something that might not, you might not see the, the covert meaning over here, but Aaron would represent God. The high priest would represent God, I mean represent the people to God. He would wear this sort of vest, and on the vest were the twelve names of the tribes of Israel. And the oil of grace would flow down, and it was God's loving His people. You have to see, it's a figure of speech, it's a metaphor. You've you got to capture the metaphor. And the next one is Mount Hermon. And it might not mean much to you, but if you were in Syria, and you would ever see this mountain, understand something, it has water 24, 12 months out of the year. In the winter, it's, 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 it's snow-capped and has ice, and, and, and it's constant rivers that flow from there. And in the winter, even I mean, in the summertime, it's so hot, and the, the rivers dry up a little bit, but, but there's a dew that just comes up. It's, it's rich in soil. It's, it's a fertile ground. I was speaking to a man several weeks ago that comes from this part of the world. And he was telling me, he goes, and he's Muslim, good man, nice man. He says, Brian, and he drifted off, and he started looking up, he goes, it's a beautiful land. It's a holy land. The vegetation. He says, when I was a kid, I could, the earth was so real, you could smell it. The fruit is so magnificent. He, he captured my imagination. He goes, it's a holy land filled with wicked people. And I said, you know, Muhammad, you're right. You're absolutely right. And that's what's going on here. You had to capture this mountain in an arid place, and there was always vegetation on it. There was always this life-giving dew throughout the whole season, no matter how hot it was. There was always vegetation. It was consistent. And these are two beautiful metaphors that he's using here to show something. It's all about unity. He says the unity is like the... The grace of God, the oil that flows down Aaron and, and consecrates God's people. This is a beautiful thing. Actually, unity means to be complete. I don't want you to miss that. It means to be complete. It means to be at the same time. It means to be together. It means unitedness. It means holy. When you put that together, this is what the picture that emerges. No one is truly whole until they are part of the whole. I don't run to my little corner and worship God. No, Jesus. You know, everybody, all the bad people stay away from me. Alright? I'm going to worship God over here. I'm going to be whole. No. I'm not whole until I'm with everybody. Then we're complete. God doesn't want one person over there worshiping. And one, that's why when people say all roads lead to God, or no, 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 no. All roads in Jesus lead to God. Because in Jesus, God unites sinners together in the worship of Himself. Unity itself is a consecrating element in the mind of God. Just like the oil separated the high priest for service to God, and that's what it did. Understand something. So also, unity of heart separates people for the service of God and the worship of God. 
men praise in one spirit the one true God not according to our each desires we don't come to God and try to praise him our own way we, we come and praise I'm not praising Jesus and you're praising Muhammad and, and you're praising Buddha and you're praising the tree and you're praising the clouds and someone's worshipping the rocks and someone's over here with the known and, and we're all coming, well, we're worshipping God. No, 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 no. Our eyes are focused on the one true God, Jehovah God that has revealed himself to us through his son Jesus Christ and him alone. This brings unity out of disunity. And like Mount Hermon that gave its life in a desert place. That no matter how dry the desert was, there was always vegetation on this place. And that's what unity does. Unity revives the soul in the midst of a spiritual desert. And that's what we live. We live in a moral... Well, I love God. Do you love God? I live in a society that does not love God. I live in a society that's changing what morals... Ah, I live in a society that is trying to get God out of the schools and doing a good job. Trying to get job, God out of the politics and they're doing a good They're trying to get God out of the churches and they're doing a good job. When I come together, I need to be around people that love God the way I love God. So after all week of pilgrimage in this moral wilderness, I come together and we worship. I'm like, praise God, I'm in the right place. All those choices I made all week were not in vain. I am not alone. There are people that love God the way I love God. And it revives the soul. And that's, that's what these analogies are. Unity is coming together. And people, there's this revival going on in the heart. And then the psalmist says in verse 3, For it's in this place that God has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. You know, we would think right away that our eyes would go to eternal life. But most likely the psalmist is not, David's not meaning that here. Uh, in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 28, it talks about the commanded blessing. And where people obeyed God from the heart, every material need would be met. Let me read. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your bonds and all that you undertake. He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Material blessings. But there's more here than just that. Let me, this is what I think. I believe along with these material blessings is the deep and rewarding blessing of just unity. That's all. Being like-minded with other people. That's a blessing. I don't know if you notice, but friendship is blessing. I know that more now in my 50s than I've ever done in my life. At 20 years old, I could have cared less. But I love my friendships that I had at 53 when I know people when I was 20. I know people when I was 10. There are people in my life now I went to grammar school with. I'm more, I, I hold that more precious now than I've ever done in my life. Friendships mean more to me now than ever. There's a deep reward to just unity with other like-minded believers. There's rich and stimulating conversation about God. They're enjoying the test. I love to hear what God is doing in other people's lives. Love that. I enjoy listening to people tell me what God's doing, how God's changing their heart, redirecting their lives. It's beautiful. But when you put it all together, I think there's one word that means so much here. Just a simple, simple life. 
just a joyous work is not going on. They're not caught up in the cares of the world. They've all got everything in common. They're coming to worship God. There's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for all this stuff because everybody's the same in the presence of God. No one worships better. We're all sinners. We need God in our life. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. I'm not closer to God. When you come to Christ, we're all even. 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 I think we miss the beauty of this. How beautiful it really is. The simple life. It's from these places that times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. There's more I can go on, but I want to close with this. Where's Jesus in all this? As much as the psalm says, as beautiful as the psalm is, it's 3,000 years old. God, give me something more up to date. It's the cross. It's the cross. There's one festival in the New Testament. I'm going to read it to you. It's found in 1 Corinthians 5. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil in our hearts towards one another, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's the Lord's Supper, it's the sacrament. That's what Paul's talking about. Every festival in the Old Testament points to Christ. Everyone. Now that Christ has come, they're insignificant. The only thing that we have today is the Lord's Supper. That's our festival. That's our throng. That's our pilgrimage. Is the Lord's Supper. This is the New Testament equivalent. The twelve nations of Israel that came up to worship God in Jerusalem three times a year, they're only a microcosm. There was only a half a promise. The, the full promise was Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through you. Now it's at the Lord's Supper. People from every tribe, nation, tongue come together and we worship God. I look into this room and I see ethnicity everywhere. But we all have everything in common because of Christ. And we come together at the Lord's table, our festival. And we can say, well, let me put it this way. David is called the lesser David. He's the lesser son of God. And he looked from his throne and he said, Behold, how beautiful. How Behold how good and pleasant when brethren dwell together. What does the great David, Jesus Christ, say on his throne when we get together around the Lord's table? The fulfillment of every Old Testament festival. Are we doing what Paul says? Are we doing it with the old leaven of malice in our hearts and evil? Or are we gathering together in sincerity and in truth? Do we partake of the Lord's... I want to ask you something. And I'll be speaking about the Lord's Supper over the, at least the next two weeks, but maybe three weeks. What do you think the Lord's Supper is? Have we turned it into a cold ritual? I'll speak more about this over the weeks to come. 
The Lord's Supper is an evaluation of our heart. When we gather together around the Lord's table and we partake of the body and the blood of Christ, it's an evaluation. And the evaluation goes like this. How pure is my heart? Can we see what God is doing at the table? Metaphorically. Can we see the grace of God in other believers' lives? Can I actually see what God is doing in someone else's life? What do I see in another believer? Does love believe the best? Am I uniting myself with other human beings who worship Christ? Or do I got a distance going on? You know, sort of an elbow room, Lord's Supper, you know? Everybody get like eight feet away from each other and we'll, take, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. No. Huh. The Lord's Supper was a gathering of people together to commemorate what Christ has done for them personally and at the cross of Christ, there's neither rich, nor poor, nor slave, nor free, nor Jew, nor Gentile, nor male, nor female, nothing. Everyone is equal at the Lord's table. There's only one thing in this world that brings men and makes them equal. It is Christ and His sacrifice. I ask us all this today. And we're going to participate if, if the gentleman can get up and get the elements. Where is our heart when it comes to the Lord's table?